in Hernando, Mississippi, there was a, a, a man who grew up in poverty, lived his whole life in this small town. He had one, he had one brown suit, one white shirt, one brown tie, one pair of brown socks, one pair of brown shoes, and one brown hat. He would often sit his children down, and he would plead with them, please behave yourselves on the streets of Hernando. And he would explain it this way. He, he would say, my name is Bacchus. And my name, we good? And my name, Bacchus, is on the line. I don't own much. I have a few acres, a small house, little education. The biggest thing I've got is my name. So always remember, there is a certain amount of responsibility that goes along with the Bacchus name. His children grew up with this glorious and transformative awareness that bearing the name Bacchus meant that they represented Bacchus to the world. Do you realize that bearing the name of Christ means that we represent Christ to the world. I wonder if you've ever caught this glorious and transformative truth. If you call yourself a Christian, then you're representing Jesus. I want to speak to you this morning under the heading, Marks of a Disciple. Marks of a Disciple. You know, a lot of times we live for our own name. A lot of times we live with our own reputation on the forefront of our mind. Often we live for ourselves, and thus we have a pretty narrow view of what our life is all about. And so in this life that we live, it's often difficult to get what we need uh, uh, just to survive, and so we have this perpetual grind where we're constantly moving, we're constantly trying to earn a dollar, we're constantly trying to fold some laundry, we're constantly trying to survive. Now, what's worse, that's truth, what's worse is when we begin to ignore the needs of others because we have a narrow view of life. What's even worse than that is when we begin to take advantage of others and begin to use others in order to get what we feel like we need and want in our own life. And what's even worse than that is when we begin to see Jesus not as the goal of our salvation, 
but as a means of getting what we think we need and what we think we want. That is not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, in verse 10, in this text we just read, we see here that Jesus says, from now on, you are going to be catching men. Now, that word men isn't referring to males, but it's referring broadly to males and females, a term for humanity. You're going to be catchers of humans. You're going to be catchers of humanity. Well, what was a disciple in the original context? Jesus here in this text is calling his first disciples. In its original context, a disciple was not something that Jesus uh, uh, invented, but discipleship was something that was part of their culture. Every teacher or a rabbi would have disciples around them. And a disciple was somebody who would literally travel with their teacher wherever their teacher went, They would sleep where their teacher slept. They would eat what and where their teacher ate. They would interact with the very same people that their teacher would interact with. A disciple would listen to and memorize every single teaching their teacher had. Uh, Often it was said of disciples that they would eventually sound like their teacher. They would embrace the mannerisms and the way of life and the traditions and the customs of their teacher. This then applies to Jesus' disciples. Now here's the interesting thing. We're skipping forward in the story, but when we get to Matthew 28 in the Bible, Jesus tells his disciples to make more disciples who are going to make more disciples around the entire world. So if you are a Christian, you've been born of the Spirit, you've been regenerated, converted, you're a Christian, you are part of this story. You are a disciple of, of Jesus Christ, and if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are called to make more disciples of Jesus Christ. So I've just given you a very brief case for the fact that every Christian is a disciple, and every disciple is a disciple maker. Are you tracking with me so far? But what is a disciple? I want to look at this text this morning. I want to explore this story together, and I want to draw out four marks of what a disciple is from this story. Four marks of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus from from Luke chapter 5, as Jesus calls his first disciples in Luke. The first mark is this. Disciples are dependent on Jesus. Everybody say dependent. dependent. Notice I didn't say independent from Jesus. I didn't say independent from the body of Christ, but we are By our nature of being a disciple of Christ, we are dependent on Christ, and by that I also mean his body, the church. Disciples are dependent. Now, let's get into the text. Let me set the stage. If you can imagine like 1960s Beatles hysteria, if you've ever seen clips from that, people going crazy, trying to get near the the band known as the Beatles, that's sort of the moment that Jesus is living in. Uh, Jesus has this huge crowd coming around him. He's next to the Sea of Galilee, which Luke calls Gennesaret. And it says literally that the crowd is pressing up against him. You can get this picture. They all want to get close to Jesus. And he's been pushed all the way to the lake. And he's probably about to fall in. 
And he's thinking, where do I go? There's no more land to get away from this crowd. He sees two boats. They're owned by someone that he's already met. Simon Peter owns one of the boats. James and John owns the other. They're fishermen. Uh, he had been to Simon's house. He actually healed Simon's mother-in-law. They know of each other. He sees Simon Peter's boat, and he jumps in it. Evidently, Simon Peter catches uh, 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 his, his drift, and he hops in as well, and Jesus says, please, paddle out. So they get out just a little bit of distance from the shore, and there, Jesus creates a pulpit on the sea. And he instructs and teaches this large crowd of people gathered on the hill around Galilee from the boat. After his sermon, he then says, we need to take a break. Let's go fishing. Let's go fish. Now, here's the crazy thing, all right? Here's the crazy thing. They've been fishing. They've been fishing all night. Uh, my car, my, my beautiful, wonderful 2004 Honda Accord um, uh, 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 with, with my rims, remember my rims, and my, my bumper, I put a new bumper on there after I didn't have a bumper for years. Is this me, Mike? No? <laughs> Keep going? You want me to use the handheld mic, or you think, you think I'm good? What you think? Yeah. All right. Oh, my, my, what I was getting at was my car died. R.I.P. <laughs> One second, technical difficulties. So my car died. I was in the middle of the intersection. It conked out on me. I uh, thought for sure that it was a simple problem that would only cost a, you know, $100 or 200 to fix, uh, maybe an alternator, and I had a tow truck come and get it, towed it to a, a, a garage, and I spent $129 for them to tell me that the engine was done. $129 to tell me that my car is junk. And so I'm sitting there kicking my car in my head. I didn't literally freak out. And Brian Sessions comes along, and Brian Sessions says, Joel, have you tried the ignition? I'm like, Brian, you're, what are you talking about? He's like, come on, just stick the key in the ignition. I mean, that's how you start a car. I'm like, Brian, I was just, you know, I, I tried that. Like, we just had it towed here. Like, they've, they've checked it out. They're like, it's impossible for this car to start. Brian says, I'm telling you, just stick the key in the ignition. That's how you start a car. Whatever. Stick the key in the ignition. And it still doesn't turn on because Brian Sessions is not Jesus, all right? <laughs> but if it were Jesus, this is, uh, this is a little illustration for what the, his, his, uh, the, or these friends, not yet disciples, would have felt in this moment. If you see in the text in verse 2, it says they were cleaning, uh, cleaning their nets washing their nets, that means they were done for the day. Uh, uh, fishermen, back in this day, they would fish all night, and washing their nets means they're done. We find out later they didn't catch anything, so that means they're not cleaning out fish guts, they're cleaning out seaweed. It was a failed night. They're tired, it was a waste, you know, they, they lived day to day, 
for, for money. They've got to catch some fish at night in order to sell some during the day in order to feed their families. Like this is a massive and utter failure for them. And Jesus has the audacity to say, hey guys, let's go for a fish. Let's go for a quick catch. Listen, when Jesus says, let's fish, we fish. When Jesus says to you to do something that doesn't make any logical sense, what do we do? I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. We'll pre- I'll preach in just a moment. But in verse 5, look at verse 5. Simon pushes back, and Simon says, Master, we toiled all night, and we took nothing. This is the expert fisherman telling a carpenter who just got onto his boat, it ain't going to happen. We've been out all night. But look at this next phrase that comes out of Simon Peter's mouth. But at your word, I will let down the nets. But at your word, I will let down the nets. I want you to just for a moment put yourself in Simon Peter's shoes. You are the expert fisherman. You've got a carpenter telling you what to do. This carpenter has no clue about any, anything about the fishing business. It doesn't make logical sense. And for just a moment, Simon Peter pushes back, but he knows something about Jesus. There's a reason reason that Jesus got into Simon Peter's boat. We already know that in some fashion, he's got some belief and faith in this guy because his very next breath says, but at your word. But at your word. And he put out. Jesus comes to you and he says, hey, I want you to, to speak in love toward that individual. And you say, but, 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 but Jesus, you, you don't understand exactly what, but at your word. Jesus wants you to share the gospel with some individual and tell them about Christ and encourage them to repent and believe. And you say, well, Jesus, you don't understand. Like, I've done, I've been there, but at your word. But at your word. Listen, are you willing to obey Jesus at his word? As we think about the discipleship, as we think about the Christian mission, we have to recognize that Jesus is the one who does, does all of the hard work and the disciples merely obey. Let me explain what I, what I mean. They set out a little farther into the deep, and at his word, they put down the nets. As we saw in the story, what happens? They get a catch. All of a sudden, their nets are filled with fish. They get a big catch to the degree that they got to call up the other boat, their partner, and say, quick, come over and help. And what happens? They fill up two entire boats with fish. They've been fishing all night and they caught nothing. What happened? 
What was different about this time out? Did they change their fishing strategies? Did they go out with new bait? That, was, that, that bait was the trick. Did they go buy these brand new ex, uh, expensive nets? And, and these nets, that they're promised to, to produce some fish. Did they buy a, a DVD uh, uh, teaching series on how to catch more fish? What did they do different? <laughs> yeah, they did nothing different. They obeyed, and they had Jesus. What does it look like as a disciple to bear fruit in our ministries? What it looks like is to obey Jesus at his word and trust that Jesus can do the hard work. Jesus is the one who brings fruit. Jesus is the one who catches the fish. We are the means. We are the, his servants who obey him at his word. Is anybody tracking with me right now? Listen, as we think of our loved ones who don't know Jesus Christ, we are obedient and he does the hard work in their hard hearts. As you think of your neighbor in Baltimore City, the people that you would like to see come to church and come to know Jesus, and as you're reaching out to them, and as it's, it's difficult and cold and hard, your job is to continue to be obedient to Jesus, and it's Jesus' job to do the hard work of bearing fruit in that ministry. We have to be dependent on Jesus as disciples. That's my point here. Disciples are entirely dependent on Jesus. Do you know how we demonstrate our dependence? We demonstrate our dependence through prayer. Every morning at 9 a.m., those of us in the office attempt to pray together. We miss it some mornings. That's the goal. And you're all welcome to join us Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. at 1411 Utah Place. And for 30 minutes, we pray for people that we know you're sharing the gospel with. If we hear somebody that you're actively locally sharing the gospel with, we try to put their name on the list. We are utterly dependent on God to move in our midst. Once a month on Sunday nights, 6 p.m., here we have a prayer service this should be at one outside of Sunday mornings. This should be our biggest attended service because we are dependent on God. We, we show that we're dependent on God in our life and in our ministry through prayer. Let me ask you this. How is your prayer life? Does it display the dependency of a disciple? The second mark of discipleship is that his disciples are confident in Jesus. They are confident, not in themselves, but in Jesus. Montrell had wondered what it would be like to have all of our sins placed up on the screen. Well, Montrell, I have a surprise for you. I've been talking to Jody and your mom and your dad 
and bishop. <laughs> and I've got a whole list. Go ahead, Ernest. Put Montrell's list up. A list of your sins. Screen's not big enough. That's right. Not enough pages to hold all of Jesus' miracles and not enough pages to hold all of our sins. Listen, who is it that could easily throw up a list of our sins on this screen if he wanted to? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus knows us more intimately than we know ourselves. Listen, if you're hiking on a glacier and there is an ice storm, you're going to die. You've got the wrath of the mountain coming at you. But if you find a crevice in that mountain, you can actually find a place of safety in the ice, and from that vantage point, everything becomes beautiful. Listen, the safe place that we have from God is in God. There is no other place to run when our sins are exposed before Him. As we look at the text here, Peter's response to this catch is falling on his knees in verse 8 before Jesus, which is a sign of his submission to Jesus, uh, uh, for his reverence for Jesus, also his fear that this man could take his life at any moment. Secondly, he calls Jesus Lord. Now, this is a different term. It's an elevated term from the term he uses in verse 6, Master. Master is a term that, that uh, references Jesus' uh, authority as a teacher or as a leader. However, Lord is an, uh, a term which recognizes that Jesus is the supreme one. As he sees the sign of the fish, he falls on his knees and he recognizes Jesus as the supreme one. And what might surprise some of you is he asks Jesus to leave. He begs him, please, depart from me. Why? For I am a sinful man. In this moment, Peter sees himself for who he is. Hey, quick word on evangelism. When you're sharing the gospel with somebody, trying to make a disciple of somebody, you don't need to list their sins for them. You expose them to Jesus. And when they're exposed to Jesus, they see themselves for who they are. When we are exposed to Jesus, we see ourselves for who we are. And there is this moment we realize we are going to die. There is a mountain of wrath coming at us, judgment coming at us because we are in our sin. But friends, the safe place from God is in God. God has provided in Christ a Savior. He's given us Jesus. How does Jesus lead us? Well, He doesn't lead us through a guilt trip. That's the way we often lead each other. Peter's down on his knees Depart from me. And Jesus says, I ain't going to go anywhere, brother, but you're, coming, you're following me. And he just kind of keeps an eye on him and gives him this guilt trip. Like, I know. Listen, we're tempted to lead people with guilt trips. 
holding people's sins and problems over their head, manipulating them for our desires. Jesus doesn't lead with a guilt trip. Jesus doesn't lead with a fear-based style of leadership. He's not into intimidation. He's not trying to show himself how big and bad he is in order to intimidate his disciples to follow him. How does Jesus lead? Look at his words here. As Simon asks him to leave, Jesus says to Simon, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He leads through comfort. How is it possible that God can comfort us in Christ? Well, you have to know the Gospel. First, Jesus forgives our sins. He lives the life that we should have lived. He lives a life of complete righteousness. He dies on the cross in our place for us. For our condemnation, He hangs on the cross. The judgment that should have been yours was placed unto Jesus Christ. And He bore the judgment of God. The wrath of the mountain was placed onto Him, thereby creating in Christ a safe place. Jesus then three days later rises from the dead. And He says, all who are weary, come to Me. I am the safe place. Come to me and find righteousness. Come to me and find forgiveness for your sins. All of you who are broken, all of you who are down and out, all of you who are burdened under the guilt of your sin, do not be burdened anymore. Come to Christ and experience and enjoy the fruit of forgiveness. In Christ, it's a safe place. In Christ, there is no room for judgment, only comfort. Secondly, Jesus comforts tender consciences. Listen, if we have a guilty conscience, we will have no impact in our disciple-making. How are you going to make disciples when you are feeling condemned before God 100% of the time? Some need a rebuke. Some of you don't realize that you have sin and you need to be humbled. But for many Christians... You need encouragement. For many Christians, you need to be reminded and assured that you are forgiven. Many Christians are uh, 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 lingering under the weight of their guilt for no reason. Jesus comes to comfort. He comes to cleanse our conscience so we can stand before Him for this reason. We give every Sunday a scriptural assurance of forgiveness. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. That's intentional. We want people who come in these doors who are trusting in Jesus Christ to know every Sunday you are forgiven of your sin. Jesus comforts the weary. He saves the lost. And for that, disciples find confidence not in themselves but they find confidence in Jesus. Thirdly, disciples are commissioned by Jesus. Disciples are commissioned by Jesus. Imagine that uh, uh, Aisha is the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and, and she comes along, and, and she 
asks you if you want to be her assistant. And you're like, what? Aisha Hill, like the CEO, multi-billionaire, Fortune 500 company. You lost me at Fortune. It would be a great honor to be asked to serve in Aisha's service. Listen, do you understand the honor that it is when Jesus commissions you to be his servant in this world? To work for him, as it were? To be his disciple? To represent his name? I don't think y'all realize the honor that that is. I think if we, if we realize the honor, I think we'd have a little more joy in our worship. I think we'd do away with this sort of mannequin uh, uh, style of worship that so often happens in a lot of our churches where we just kind of stand frozen in place. We got no joy because we often don't realize the beauty and the honor of what it means to be called and commissioned as, as a servant, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Check this out. For Peter, his conviction of sin finds rest in the comfort of Jesus Christ. Jesus comforts how? He comforts precisely through calling Peter and Jesus calls Peter through commissioning Peter. Look at how quickly he goes from comfort to call to commission. He says in verse 10, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. His conviction moves to comfort which moves to a call, which moves to a a commission, and that commission is what? It's to move from catching fish to catching men. Now, this word catch here in verse 10 is a different word than the word that's used before in verse 4 and verse 9 as it relates to catching fish. The word that's used for catching fish is a word that would reference uh, uh, catching someone as prey, catching something for death. The word that Jesus uses in verse 10 as it relates to catching men is a word that that references life, meaning you are catching, you are going to no longer catch fish for death, but you are going to catch men for life. As one put it, this means that they are going to rescue humans from the depths of sin and misery, and save them, bring them into life and salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, skipping forward real fast, Peter, James, John, these three men that Jesus is calling and commissioning in this moment, let me give you a glimpse into their future life. Peter will one day preach one sermon and see 3,000 people saved by that sermon. He'll go on to pastor a church in Rome, be very influential, write two books of the Bible. James will be the first apostle uh, martyred. He will give his life 
for the cause of Jesus Christ as he's preaching the gospel. He will die by sword to King Herod. His brother John, who's fishing with him here. John will go on to pastor the church in Ephesus. He'll write five books of the Bible. John will disciple a man named Polycarp, who will disciple a man named Arrhenius, who will disciple a man named Hippolytus of Rome, (laughs) and he will disciple, Hippolytus will disciple a man named Origen of North Africa. My point is this. With these three men alone, we see that Jesus' promise is coming true. That they walk away from what they've known, they begin to catch men, and God uses them to literally transform the known world. Saving individuals out of the jaws of death and taking the gospel across the globe. Listen, I said earlier that too often our view of life is too narrow. We live for ourselves. We live in this tunnel vision and we don't see the bigger picture of what life is about. We don't see the time and the moment and the opportunity and the job and the family that God has placed you into for a purpose, for a season, for a reason. Jesus, His call of discipleship expands our vision of the world. It expands our understanding of of, of what God is doing in our own life, of where we are heading as a human race and what our place is in this time. This doesn't mean that you leave your job, but it does mean you rethink your job. It means you rethink your relationships at work. Are they relationships that commend the gospel that you hear on Sunday mornings? Would people be surprised to know that you are a member of a local church. I wonder if it would change the way that we think of our neighbors. You know that problem neighbor? The one that you wish would move? The people underneath you that play music loud at 3 a.m.? You know what I'm talking about. I wonder if it would change the way we think about our neighbors. I wonder if it would change the way we think about our extended family and our close family. Listen, we are to be a people on mission. Wherever we are at, we are called to be a disciple of Jesus, and it broadens our view of the world and of our life. It gives us meaning and purpose. I love it when I hear members of this church asking each other, who are you discipling? Who are you sharing the gospel with? Just out of curiosity. I love it. That's what, that's what this is about. Being a Christian is to be a disciple, and to be a disciple is to be a disciple-making disciple. Now, last question, and I will be done. I promise. What is the goal of, the, uh, of a disciple? Is our goal to see as many people saved as possible? Is our goal to change the neighborhood? Is our goal to start an organization that transforms the city? What is our goal? Now this is a very, very important question. If we misunderstand the goal, we will get burned out, I guarantee it. 
What is our goal? Here's the fourth mark of a disciple. Disciples are captivated by Jesus. They are captivated not by the results. They are captivated by Jesus. There was a, a servant who was working in a field, and, and uh, in this field he found a buried treasure. And this treasure was m- worth more than anything he'd ever seen in his entire life. And so he put the treasure back in the ground and he went home. And his wife is blown away as he puts the car out in, in the driveway for sale. What are you doing? How are you going to get to work tomorrow? Don't worry about it. Puts the house on the market, sold in a day. Our clothes? You've got to sell our clothes as well. Like he's selling everything he's got. And then he takes all of the cash that, he, that, 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 that he's worth, everything that he knows, his whole life, and he, with, with that, he buys what looks like to others to be a worthless field. But when he buys the field, he now owns the treasure that is buried in the field. Listen, friends, the way that you show that you treasure Jesus is not what you can get from Jesus, but what you are willing to lose for Jesus. This man is willing to lose everything he knows. He's willing to walk away from all of it, to sell all of it, to get rid of all of it, so that he can have this treasure. He loses the whole world so that he can gain the whole world. Everything. Listen, this is what it means to be a disciple. It is to be captivated by Jesus Christ. As these disciples are now coming back on these two boats, they're filled with fish. Get this picture. The boats are sinking. They are so full. I don't know how much money this fish is worth, but you know it was worth a little something. They could probably sell this fish and take a year vacation across the sea on some exotic beach, right? Listen, as they're coming back on these boats, they're not popping champagne bottles. As they're coming back on these boats, you don't hear shouts of joy of, of oh, look at the fish, look, look at it, come on, come on, and, and sail. I mean, they got a crowd there who probably would buy this fish. What happens in the story? As they're coming back, it's probably quiet. And they're just looking at Jesus. Look at verse 11. It says, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I don't think you saw those two words. They left everything. They didn't sell the fish and take the money. We can probably just assume that the crowds had it. Free lunch for everybody. (laughs) When they get back, they leave everything and follow Jesus, which means the catch was not as impressive to them as what it showed them about Jesus. Listen, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to not be focused on the good things that we can get from Jesus. 
Yes, He does give us good things. He blesses us with all sorts of things. Family and friends and wealth and treasures. But, but that stuff doesn't impress us as much as it shows us of God's goodness to us in Jesus Christ. Do you treasure Jesus? Or do you treasure only what Jesus can give you? Listen, friends, money fades. Money fades. Clothes tear. Vacations come to an end. Fish rot. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the Word of God stands forever. Listen, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The goal of discipleship is to see the glory of Christ. All of history is pointing to this day when we just sit around Jesus and gaze upon Him in His glory and worship Him. Listen, heaven is described as a place with gates of pearl. It's described as a place with streets made out of gold. But when we read Revelation chapter 5, what are we doing in heaven? Are, are, are we gathering around our mansions saying, hey guys, come and see what I got? Are we kissing the streets of gold, praising uh, the, the beauty and the wonder of these streets? Are we gazing in awe at the, at the gates of pearl? Now, these things are nothing to us now. They're nothing to us now. According to Revelation 5, here is the song of heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. I heard them all saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. That word forever means in the original language forever. This is our song. Forever. He is worthy of all of our praise. What displays that we treasure Jesus is not what we can gain in this world, but what we are willing to lose in this world in order to gain Him. Jesus is not a means to the end, but Jesus is the end of our salvation. Let me close with one more question. I already told you I had one question. I've got two. This is my second. Is He worthy? Is He worthy? We can ask the Apostle Peter. Peter, you left two boats of fish behind. You ended up getting locked up for your future ministry. You ended up being crucified upside down. A painful death. Now that you see the lamb slain, now that you hear this eternal song, let me ask you, Peter, is he worthy? Or, or we could ask James. He didn't even get to see the end of the book of Acts. His life was taken in chapter 12 by sword because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as he sits around that throne. We can ask James. James, 
Is he worthy? What do you think James is going to say? He's worthy. He's worthy of all of my life. We can ask the Apostle John, who ended up exiled on the island of Patmos, who lost all of his friends. He lived in old age, but he saw all of his friends murdered. John, is he worthy? He's worthy of all of our honor and all of our riches, all of our power. He's worthy of all of our strength. To Him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Is He worthy, church? Is He worthy? Is He worthy? What, what is it that you must leave behind to follow Christ? Is He worthy? What is it that you have left behind? Is He worthy, church? Oh, he is worthy. He's worthy. Listen, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to see Jesus and to prize Jesus. And out of that, the abundance flows. And we make more disciples of Jesus. We have nothing to lose in this life if we have Jesus. Amen? Come on, somebody shout. He is worthy to receive all of my honor, glory, strength forever and ever Amen. Father, we thank you that Jesus is worthy. We thank you for giving us this treasure in Christ. God, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to raise up disciples in this church who are making disciples. We pray that we would see some real revival happen in Baltimore City as men and women fall on their knees before Jesus and find Jesus to be worthy. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.